Hello, and welcome to episode three of Paint by Murders. I'm your host, narrator, and author, M. Travis DiNicola. Paint by Murders is an original mystery novel. It's the first in a series of Harrisburg homicide mysteries. In the last episode, Keith made his visit to the River Room, where he met the owner, Michael, a younger couple, Trevor and Rose, and an elderly lady, Jane Goodwin. Though Keith once thought Jane was a homeless lady, it turns out that she is quite well off, if not a bit eccentric, and a great fan of art. Jane asks Keith lots of questions about his artwork and encourages him to show his work at the Harrisburg Art Members Gallery. She also tells him about the Grey Gallery, which features the work of the late Alan Moonshine. Each episode of this podcast, dropping once a week, will feature subsequent installments from the novel. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the story. Chapter 6 That next Sunday, Keith and Ginger walked through their new neighborhood. The warm, early autumn days continued. The trees were full of leaves yet to change, and there was a slight breeze coming off the river. The air smelled good. They were admiring the architecture of the century-old, colorfully painted brick townhomes on their narrow street. The trees made a canopy of green over the block. It reminds me of Federal Hill in Baltimore, said Ginger. I was thinking Beacon Hill in Boston, but without the snow or the Patriots fans, Keith replied. Or the expense. I still can't believe we can afford to live here. I love... This neighborhood, and I love our house. Ginger was practically twirling as she grabbed Keith to kiss him. They were happy here. They turned off their street to head west towards the river. Following the Greenbelt bike and walking path through the riverfront park along the Susquehanna, they headed towards downtown. A few small, flat-bottomed fishing boats and a couple kayaks were out on the river, piloted by people taking advantage of the mild fall weather. Most of the pontoons had already been pulled out of the water in anticipation of winter. They hadn't gone far when Keith noticed a silhouette coming at them from the opposite direction. He recognized it as Jane. She was wearing her long, heavy coat and looking at her feet as she shuffled up the path through a flock of geese. Keith pointed her out to Ginger. Honey, she doesn't look like a gnome. She looks like Miss Marple. His wife admonished him for the way he had earlier described Jane after they first met. Keith called out hello to Jane. If he hadn't, she probably would have walked right into them. She stopped her forward movement and looked up with a start. It took her just a moment, but then she recognized him and smiled. She held out her hand to Keith. Well, hello, young man. How nice to see you again. How do you do? Keith held her frail hand and said he was doing very well. Then Jane realized that Ginger was standing there, too, and looked her up and down. Do you know that you are very tall? Um, yes. Yes, I, I do. My name's Ginger. It's nice to meet you. Jane gave Ginger her hand. You must be Keith's wife. It's nice to meet you, too. You certainly don't look like a Ginger. I'm sure that it's all right, though. Welcome to Harrisburg. Keith could tell that Ginger wasn't sure how to reply to that other than to say thank you. Keith jumped in and said something about being a lovely day for a walk. Jane agreed and told them that she had been out bird watching and had seen some great egrets. They make their home on the Wade Island, you know. She pointed past them up the river to the north. It's nice of them to come down here to visit, don't you think? Ginger said that she thought it was very nice. Well, I'm starting to get a chill and must head home. Would you two like to come with me and have a cup of tea? Keith was about to politely decline when Ginger spoke up and said they would love to. Jane looked delighted and offered her arm to Ginger, who accepted it as they continued down the path, with Keith following. 
Ginger turned around and gave Keith a conspiratorial grin. Soon they were at the Hamilton Street intersection, and Jane turned to leave the path. As they stood on the curb, waiting for the traffic to slow down so they could cross Front Street, Jane tapped Ginger's hand and pulled her arm away. Thank you for your arm, that was very nice, but this won't work for me stepping off the curb. You're so tall that my body will get confused. Keith, come take my arm across the street. And he did. Jane's house sat right on Front Street, looking out over the Susquehanna. It was one of the large, three-story Queen Anne houses that made the neighborhood so distinct. Ginger was impressed. Jane, your home is beautiful, she said. Wait till you see the inside, Jane said proudly. Jane led them up the front steps, fumbled a bit with her keys, and then opened the heavy stained glass and mahogany door. With the afternoon sun streaking through the dusty air exposing Jane's treasures, Keith thought of Howard Carter entering King Tut's tomb. When he asked if he could see anything, Carter could only say, Yes, wonderful things. Every inch of wall from the entry room through the living room and beyond seemed to be covered with framed paintings, photographs, and drawings. Every flat surface displayed a sculpture or glass or pottery. Keith was dumbstruck. Though it was warm inside, Jane kept her coat on. You two look around while I make us some hot tea, she said as she scurried off to the kitchen. Ginger said softly that it was like a museum, and Keith agreed. The furnishings were antique, but most of the art was modern or contemporary, and amazing. Above the mantel was a very simple Matisse drawing of a woman's face. The drawing hung next to a Tibetan temple rubbing of Shiva, which was placed next to a pink Warhol Debbie Harry. On the wall behind the couch was a serigraph poster from Lichtenstein's 1969 Guggenheim show, with a Ben Day dot horse and a knight in the center of a circle, the artist's first solo exhibit. Next to it was one of Robert Longo's charcoal drawings of a woman twisting, and then a print of Cindy Sherman's film stole photograph. Hung up high was a black-and-white gas tank photograph Keith knew was by the German couple Burned and Hilla Becker. He also recognized an Andre Serrano photograph, a Keith Haring dog print, and a Judy Chicago cat watercolor. One built-in shelf held a half-dozen vintage scrimshaw carvings of images of whales on bone, probably walrus teeth, guarded by a small Jeff Koons balloon dog sculpture. There was also a blue toothbrush under a glass case. The shelf immediately above it was reserved for her collection of genuine Korean Koryo Celadon pottery from the 12th century, Keith speculated to Ginger, and he was pretty sure that the colorful glass piece on the top shelf was an early Chihuly from when the artist actually did his own work. Jane returned, precariously balancing a vintage teapot and cups on a tray. Ginger offered to help her with it, and Jane readily accepted they sat the tray down on an antique Chinese-carved wood coffee table. Jane dropped down into a dark leather club chair and indicated that Ginger and Keith should sit on the chintz couch. Ginger took the lead on pouring them tea into the china cups. Oh, Jane, you have so much beautiful art, but, it, but I have to ask about the toothbrush, said Keith. Ha! Ah, that was Jackson Pollock's. Jane clapped her hands in delight. Keith was stunned. He used that toothbrush to paint with? Oh, no, now that would be truly amazing. It was just his toothbrush, you know, to brush his teeth with. It was stolen from his bathroom, so I've been told. It was a gift from a friend of mine who was a professional magician. Hard to prove that one, though. You can't believe anything a magician tells you. Jane turned away. Was she embarrassed? Still, you have an amazing collection. Yes, I do. Thank you. Jane was very pleased that they were so appreciative. I have been very fortunate. 
Louis made my collecting possible. He was always very supportive. Of course, he loved it all, too. He picked out all those scrimshaw pieces himself. She pointed to the shelves. After we made our first trip to Maine, he fell in love with the art and started his collection. He really loved Scrimshaw. You must miss him very much, said Ginger. I do. It's been over ten years, and I still miss him every day. Her voice was wistful. I'm so sorry to bring it up, Ginger apologized. Oh, no, no, not at all. It's what it is, and look at all the wonderful memories I have. Jane made a sweeping gesture with her hand. Keith interpreted it as an invitation to get back up off the couch and keep looking around. Is that a marked tansy? Keith pointed to a small painting hanging by the kitchen. It was a blue monochrome of the bottom of a rolling airborne car. He moved in closer to evaluate it. This is a sketch for pleasure of the text, Keith exclaimed. I'm a huge fan of Tansy. This is one of my favorites of his. He could barely contain his need to explain the picture as he turned back to his wife. Ginger, in the first piece, there's a guy with his back towards us, standing nonchalantly on a road with this car coming at him. Between the guy and the car is a stop sign pointed towards the car. And this guy is like, I'm going to be okay. This car can't hit me because there's a stop sign between us. And the title comes from the Roland Barthes book on literary criticism, The Pleasure of the Text. It's like he believes the power of the text can save him from reality. Jane clapped her hands. She was pleased with Keith's description. Well said. Tansy is such an intelligent painter. He's been one of my favorites, too. I always thought of him like a modern-day Magritte. This is amazing. I don't think I've seen one of his sketches before. It's so much looser in style than what I'm used to seeing. I've heard Tansy only makes about one paint in a year because they're so detailed and they're photorealistic and they sell for a ton. Something else then caught Keith's eye. An old red brick with a B bros modeled into it and with black markings on it. It was being used as a doorstop for the door that led to the kitchen. Jane, is that an Alan Moonshine brick? I thought you weren't a fan. Jane giggled a bit before she answered. Well, that's why it makes a perfect doorstop. I never would have paid a quarter million for it myself, but it was a gift from his mother. We were friends, and I didn't want to just hide it in storage. At least this way it has some use. A quarter million dollar doorstop? Neither Keith nor Ginger could hide their astonishment. And it's a great conversation piece, too. As those looks on your faces prove, the funny thing is that it's probably worth more than anything else I have in my collection. And it's such a silly little piece. I wouldn't normally talk about how much something's worth. That isn't very polite, you know. But with that piece, I just can't help myself. It makes me laugh. And Jane giggled a bit more. Then she asked them if they would like to see her husband's photographs. Of course, both Keith and Ginger answered. Jane directed them to the top of the stairs. You two go first. It takes me a little extra time. Keith and Ginger climbed the stairs, lined with more art, to the second floor. At the landing, they could see a framed, large, black-and-white photograph of a young, nude woman. There were trees in the background and some buildings that were intentionally out of focus. After a moment, they recognized the woman as Jane. Louis took that almost 60 years ago when I was much younger, and they still used film and cameras, she said from behind them. It's beautiful, said Ginger. Jane, you look beautiful. Jane had made it to the landing, slightly out of breath. Yes, I was quite the catch. Where was it taken, Keith asked. It looks familiar. It was in Central Park. That's on the roof deck of the Met. There weren't any guards up there then, and I just slipped my dress off and he took the picture. It was right after Louie and I were married. Here, let me show you some more of his photographs. Jane led them into a sitting room on the second floor and flipped the light switch. Keith and Ginger were almost blinded by the brightness and the room. 
Unlike the rest of the house, which was a mix of every style and color, this room was entirely black and white. Black and white nude photographs, more than two dozen, filled the gallery white walls. Nothing else was in the room except for a white leather reclining chair in the middle of the white carpeted room. Jane, still in her heavy coat, sat in the chair and pushed off with her foot to swivel it around. This room is like my very own Rothko Chapel, but with Louis' photos. Aren't they beautiful? She was spinning in her chair. They are stunning, said Ginger. Feeling dizzy, Keith was thinking the same thing. He wasn't sure if he would have called them beautiful. Most of the models, male and female, had contorted their bodies to be almost unrecognizable. Genitalia peeked out from some very strange places. It wasn't obscene, but it wasn't exactly beautiful either. What was stunning to him was that Jane compared the room to a chapel. It was not what he would have pictured for her as a space for contemplation. Clearly, she came here to reflect and remember her husband. This is what she paid attention to. It made Keith tired. I admit, it can be a bit much, said Jane. She put her foot down to stop the chair's movement. But this room makes me feel so alive. She kicked off and spun around in her chair again like a little girl. Then as Jane slowed down, she noticed the drained look on Keith's face. Keith, you don't look so well. Watching her spin had made the dizziness worse. I think I just need to sit back down and have a bit more tea. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll go back downstairs. Jane said to go right ahead and they would join him in a minute. Ginger lagged behind, helped Jane out of the chair and down the stairs. Sitting on the comfortable chintz couch in the overheated room filled with wonderful things, Keith just wanted to nap. But he didn't want to be rude. He drank some tea, hoping it would push the clouds out so he could keep it together until they left for home. As Ginger came back in the room, his wife asked him if he was feeling better. Yeah, thanks. Good for now. Jane, my apologies. We'll have to go soon. I think I just got a, a bit overwhelmed by all the amazing art you have. I, I certainly didn't expect to be seeing all of this today. Jane interrupted. And you haven't even seen half of it. There's so much more throughout the rest of the house and in storage. You both need to come back when you're feeling better and see it all. Jane paused and then added, It's nice to be able to share it with someone. Jane, do you have any family close by? Ginger asked. No, not really. I've, I've outlived everyone I was close to. My nephew visits from time to time. Actually, it's been quite a long time. I'm sure he's just making sure that I remember him well enough to keep him in the will. She let out a little giggle again. Won't he be surprised when he finds out that most of this is going to charity? <laughs> You're giving it to a museum? Ginger wondered. No, that would be nice, but it's not quite that good of a collection. My estate will be auctioned off when I die, and the money will go towards protecting the birds that live on the Susquehanna. Then she added as she clapped her fingers, but they don't know that either. Whether Jane was referring to the birds or the people at the charity, Ginger said she thought that that was a marvelous plan. After she and Keith said their thanks and goodbyes, they walked home so that Keith could nap. Chapter 7 Keith needed that nap. Physically, literally, he needed it. Keith was a narcoleptic. He had narcolepsy. Or, as some people said, he was a PWN, person with narcolepsy. He wasn't the falling down type of PWN. That was type 1 narcolepsy with cataplexy, when the muscles holding your body up think you're asleep, even though you're completely conscious, and so you collapse. It was usually triggered by laughter or fear or some other intense emotion. Keith didn't have that. At least not yet, he thought. He was fortunate, and he knew it. He had seen the falling down happen to other people at the sleep clinics, and it really scared him. What he was, what he had was neurological and it could progress, but so far Keith just needed to nap a lot. When he was younger, 
He thought his ability to fall asleep anywhere, anytime, like on a noisy school bus, was a superpower. He could still fall asleep at a moment's notice, but as he got older, he couldn't always control it. It had begun to interfere with his life. With his wife's help, he realized something was wrong. After visiting a sleep lab, Keith finally had been diagnosed with a mild form of type 2 narcolepsy, which basically meant that no matter how much he slept, he would still have what the doctors called excessive daytime sleepiness. Keith's excessive sleepiness was quite mild in comparison to other PWNs. Some had waking nightmares or had to take medication in the middle of the night. He just drank a lot of coffee every morning and napped a bit almost every afternoon. Usually that was enough to keep it in check. If he knew he couldn't get his nap in, then Darjeeling tea was sometimes enough to push him through. He tried to only drink energy drinks on long road trips. Being a narcoleptic was something Keith told almost no one. People didn't usually understand it and almost always made jokes about it. Don't let me put you to sleep. I'm not that boring. Hey, there's a nap for that. Did you hear the one about the narcoleptic priest who fell asleep during his own sermon? The best side effect if you could call it that, was that he had very vivid dreams, as they often are for people who sleep in short spurts instead of long stretches. The need to sleep could come on fast. When it struck, Keith would feel his brain start to shut down, preparing to dream. His thoughts would slow down and his eyes would fog over, and the stress made it worse. When it came on like that, it would actually hurt him to stay awake, like after seeing Jane's spinning art. 20 minutes or sometimes even just 10 was enough to take care of it. There were times when Keith felt that he just had to take a nap or he would die. Chapter 8 It was Monday, the beginning of the work week, and the work had been going well for Keith. Inspired by Jane's art collection, he found himself working with a simple palette and focusing on the subtle shifts in tones of single colors to create the depth he was seeing in the cityscapes. Making a living as an artist had always been Keith's goal, even if the living meant just scraping by sometimes. He had a few good shows in smaller galleries, and had enough fans who collected him, but he knew he would never end up in the Met or MoMA, or have his works auctioned for millions of dollars, and he was fine with that. His works, usually on medium-sized canvases, were meant for home decor and priced accordingly. He had a website, but only to promote his work, not to sell it. He let the galleries take care of the dealing with the transactions, Lately, most of his work was being sold to corporate clients for their lobbies and meeting rooms, and the corporate clients paid well. His style was loose, or painterly as some called it, often with visible impossible brush strokes of heavy paint. He loved texture and the brush stroke as much as color. Keith himself didn't consider them impressionistic, seeing his work more in the tradition of Cezanne and his sense of structure than Monet, who was looser. His true heroes were the early and mid-20th century American painters, especially John Sloan and Edward Hopper, and then later Richard Diebenkorn. Sloan, the least well-known of the three, was part of the Ashcan School, so-called because they painted scenes from everyday life, often dark paintings of poor people and neighborhoods in New York at the turn of the last century. It wasn't so much the subject matter as the open style of Sloan's work that influenced Keith. He preferred a brighter palette. Hopper was the most well-known of the three, especially for his Nighthawks diner painting, but it was his angular light patterns that spoke to Keith. Diebenkorn took light and shape and abstracted it into paintings that still evoke sun-drenched landscapes. These artists inspired him, especially Hopper and Diebenkorn's sense of geometry, but Keith had his own style. Keith thought that in some ways, 
Having an identifiable style was more important to an artist's success than any actual talent he or she had. Galleries and buyers loved being able to look at a painting and immediately think they knew who the artist was based on the style and then check the signature for confirmation of their excellent eye. That's what sold. He could paint a picture of a back porch in the Keith Reed style and it would be a guaranteed sale. He could paint something realistically or more abstract and it might be a really good work, but no one would be interested in it, at least not his usual customers. Keith kept painting, but his mind wandered as he added texture to the flat shapes of the buildings, bringing them to life. At least Keith liked his own style. Mark, a studio mate of Keith's from college, became well-known for paintings of people rendered in neon colors. After a few successful years, Mark grew tired of the neon palette and started painting with earth tones instead. His gallery threatened to take him to court if he ever showed them in public. It turned out that Mark had borrowed a bunch of money from the gallery as an advance on future sales sales the gallery was counting on with the neon paintings. Mark might have been interested in earth tones, but that wasn't what he was known for. He had a choice. Pay back all the money he owed right then, or keep turning out the neon. So he turned out the neon like a factory worker without any passion. Keith didn't think he could do that. My boss invited us to dinner at his house, Ginger called out as she climbed the stairs to Keith's studio. Ginger's voice had startled him. Warren Zevon was turned up on the stereo and he hadn't heard her come in. Why was she home early? He looked at his watch and realized he had lost track of time. That was nice of him, he called back as he turned the music down. What night? He asked, then continued to apply a light blue wash to the canvas. As Ginger reached the summit to the third floor, she paused to catch her breath and then said, Tonight, silly, we're to be there by 6.30. They live in Uptown, near the Italian Lake Park, so if we want to walk, we need to leave here by 6. Stephen insisted it was nothing fancy, just him and his husband and some pasta and salad so you don't need to worry about dressing up. Ginger noticed Keith's disheveled appearance and the multiple canvases he was simultaneously working on. It looks like you've been working hard. That's awesome. It's been a good day. The last thing Keith wanted to do was to stop working and get ready to go to someone else's house for dinner, but he knew that Ginger really liked her job and her boss, and this would be important to her. He set down his brush and began to clean up the paints. Should we bring anything? Stephen said not to, but I thought we'd grab a bottle of wine on the way there. We won't have time. The Midtown Wine Shop closes at six, remember? Oh, that's right. That's okay. They never have a good selection anyway. We still have a few bottles of the Fern Valley wine in the basement. Why don't I grab one of those? They'd been saving their last bottles of the Meritage from Michigan for a special occasion, which apparently this was. It sounds like a great idea, Keith said. If you can take care of that and feed the cats while I clean up, then I can be ready in time. Deal? Deal, she said, as she gave him a quick kiss on the forehead. You've been listening to Episode 3 of Paint by Murders. Thanks to Pixabay.com for the music. Come back in a week for the next episode. If you'd like more information about the project or have comments you would like to share, please do so on the social media pages where you found this or email me at paintbymurders at gmail.com. I'm your host, narrator, and author, M. Travis DiNicola. Thanks for listening. <laughs>